Hello listeners, it's John here. I just want to let you know that Liz's microphone sounds very slightly different in this episode. We need to get on because Liz is starting to make I need to go to bed soon because I've got nine o'clock meeting noises. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 57th episode of Octothorpe which is coming to you on the 12th of May 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we are recording our first episode after EasterCon but before we get to EasterCon we have some letters of comment. So we um, had a letter from Malcolm Hutchison that said that in the episode before last, the sound I made at the start of the episode made him visualise me as a Muppet in a good way, which is nice. Well, there's the chapter art. Oh, yes. I'm well up for that. Well, it may need to be all three of us as Muppets, so that might be a bit hard. Can my Muppet have a glittery Octothorpe on its forehead? Yeah, I should think so. Thank you very much to Meg McDonald, who did a letter of comment in the form of a glyph on my skin, uh, which is the first time we've had a letter of comment on that medium. So thank you very much, Meg. She, she also um, decorated me. Chris, Chris Garcia sent his letter uh, saying, I don't like live episodes usually, but this one is really good because y'all and I don't know if I can say y'all. I say y'all and y'all didn't try to make it into a live show any different from the regular show. Maybe that's not normal. So I think that's a compliment. But basically, when we're live, apparently we sound exactly like when we're not live, which is... Well, no, I think when we're not live, we sometimes do have show notes and preparation. So thank you, Chris, for that. He also says that Streaky Bacon is the only true bacon, which is another example of when Chris is wrong about things. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Um, it's just, I much prefer it when he's right about things. He still hasn't told me which author wrote me. Oh, yeah. I'm still waiting, Chris. Sorry, Chris is right about Streaky Bacon. No. Nope. Certainly not right about British Streaky Bacon. American Streaky Bacon's very nice. No, it's, no American street, Americans don't understand how to do Streaky Bacon. In fact, Americans don't understand how to do bacon. But British Streaky Bacon... No, American bacon is better than British streaky bacon, 100%. Because? Because it's crispy and nice, as opposed to sort of limp and sad. No, it's crispy if you cook it properly in Britain. This is a matter of how you fry it, right? Get good bacon from a good butcher, fry it, streaky bacon turns into the most marvellous thing, and then you eat it on, um, on balm cakes with brown sauce. Hispania won't eat bacon in the UK. Because she fundamentally thinks that our streaky bacon is complete crap and uh, she just waits to go back. You need to get a decent bacon. Get ba- get better bacon. We've had it from a decent butcher. It's not a problem with butchers. It's not a problem with provenance. It's a problem with our country, Alison. Our country. It's a problem with the pigs? I don't know. Maybe. Streaky bacon in the UK is not quite the same as American bacon, I think is the problem. No, no, it's a different cut of bacon. But streaky bacon is the best bacon because fundamentally, fundamentally, I just like lard. Streaky bacon has its own lard in it, right? So it naturally cooks itself in lard. Back bacon's better. You're overruled. Yeah, I'm a jump. No, so wrong. Uh, official opinion of the Octothought podcast by majority vote that back bacon is best. And that's going to be the episode title. And you can't stop me. <laughs> Boom. At least nobody likes middle. <laughs> 
maybe in hindsight, listening to all the bacon chat, it's a good thing we did not actually sit down and have breakfast together at EasterCon because it would have just devolved into a massive bacon argument. I mean, I think, I mean, unlike Hispania, I will take whatever bacon is going. So, like, I do think bacon is better than no bacon. Although I like mushrooms more than bacon. Ooh. Chris also wrote to us with a lock on the previous episode. He says, The fan awards and Corflu is late shows how much outside of fanzine fandom he is at the moment. He still does zines, but he's not quite a part of the Corflu community, which he finds kind of sad because he loves zines and a bunch of the stuff the Corflu regulars do. Um, and that kind of ties into stuff we were saying in that episode and that is interesting because i think chris is one of the fairly prolific old school fanzine editors roman wrote to us on easter sunday when we were scoffing chocolate catching covid and preparing for our live show to send us greetings from the easter bilby um, for which we're very grateful because we do not have easter bilbies in britain or thailand uh i have a question about what is an easter bilby well it's a bilby at easter it's a fundamental a question Bilby here. is an adorable Australian animal, which I've already drawn. So I'm going to try and draw John <laughs> as a Bilby Muppet now. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Thank you, Roman. Oh, they're cute. Sorry, I looked at... Yeah, no, no, Bilbies are very cute. I looked at Bilby. They've got adorable giant ears. They have adorable giant ears. And also glasses and a silly beard. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That is a daft-looking animal. It really is, yeah. <laughs> so, it looks like... I don't know what it looks like. John the Bilby Muppet. <laughs> oh, that's my art task for the week, isn't it? Yes. We have one more lock, which was from Jersey Griffin, who says that the Hello Internet podcast did a vinyl episode before jumping the shark and doing a four- to five-minute wax cylinder episode. And uh, that is interesting. I'll try and find a link and pop it in the show notes. Oh, a four to five-minute wax cylinder episode. Sorry, I thought you said a 45-minute wax cylinder episode. And I was like, it's a lot of wax. What was the wax cylinder episode? Someone else did a wax cylinder episode that we have been alerted to by one of our listeners. As well as false light. Well, we all have fun at EasterCon. Obviously, we talked about our impressions of EasterCon last week. But this time, we're going to talk about what happened after EasterCon, which is that quite a lot of people went home and discovered that they had caught COVID at the convention, including me. I'm all better now. Thank you very much. That's the bit you could edit the cough into, John. <laughs> so there'll be another one along in a minute my buses it's interesting because the west con happened the same weekend with the identical covid policy to east con and did not have very many cases possibly because there isn't as much covid in the area but also possibly because people at northwest con behaved slightly differently than people at EasterCon. i went around the convention i mean i mostly i mostly did follow the convention's COVID policy and I masked up except when I was eating and drinking in bars. Um, how much time did I spend eating and drinking in bars? I mean, a lot. Until 7am on the... Uh... Only 6.30. <laughs> and I didn't spend all of that time in a bar. I spent some of that time in a corridor. And um, I didn't spend all of that time... Um... No, I did spend all of that time unmasked. One of the things that Hispania said on the way home was that if we do... Because Hispania stayed up late on the Sunday night 
and we both agreed that in future conventions we might go to bed sort of 1am ish on purpose because the masking dropped noticeably after about midnight every night that i stayed up that late and i think that's like a mixture of things like people up that late are generally drinking but also like as you get drunker your uh, ability to remember to put your mask on between swigs of beer does decrease um and so i think i think the the convention got riskier after midnight than it was before would be my guess conventions are normally riskier after the midnight I'm, I'm not sure I would peg that at midnight. What I would say is during the daytime when people were in panels or in the dealer's room or even in the games room, they seemed to be mostly masked. Of course, you could, you, there were exceptions for people with medical exemptions. People on panels often were not wearing masks because um, of the need to lip read. And there were a few notable exceptions of people I saw like in panels who seemed to be slowly sipping a drink for the whole hour and I get made unreasonably cranky by this and i saw you and i know who you are um but let's move on uh, but then basically what happens is you know the program the program dies down people start uh, going out to dinner or go out to dinner and then come back and sit in the bar and then you're drinking and you're fairly continuously drinking from your pint of beer or your glass of wine or eating your pizza and you tend not to put your masks back on and then basically you end up with a large room, either the, in this case the, the real ale bar or the hotel bar, which is full of people who are not really masked. And then, you know, I was I put mine back on for things like, you know, making a quick trip to Lou or going to the bar to buy another drink. But um, fundamentally, I'm spending a lot of that time without a mask on. And I think that's my guess is that's where quite a lot of the transmission occurred. And the later it got, the less people had masks on. But also the later it got, I think, you know, once you get past one or two a.m., there's a lot fewer people still around so that probably does help a bit yeah i mean i'm not sure that the actual number of people in the bar after 1am was the problem here though it's certainly true that the people who were up late were more likely to be people who catch covid but they're probably more sociable people generally I want to single out two events that were not just hanging out in the bar. The first was a disco, which was a programme item. And the COVID policy was completely clear that if you're in the disco and dancing, you should have been wearing masks. And as far as I could tell from the many, many photos of people singing along in the disco and having a great time, nobody in the disco wore a mask. And that's probably an extremely spready sort of an event. And the other event I want to single out was the Vauxhall party, which obviously was not a good official programme item, but was in the same room that we had Octothorpe live in, which was one of the less well-ventilated rooms in the convention. And it was quite crowded. And obviously a lot of drinking was... People were actively drinking. Um, and obviously if you were actively drinking, you did not have to wear a mask because, you know, active drinking is what we do. And I think that was probably quite a spready event, but you can't tell. Shona categorised what I said about my EasterCon experience as one woman super spreader event. Alison Scott has absolutely no regrets. And I don't on my account and on catching it. And I've not been very sick. But I, you know, I have a friend who spent a night in hospital. And um, I have another friend who went home to to with COVID to be the sole carer for her, her aged parents. So I think there's cases like that where you do have to go, well, maybe we should be a little bit more careful and see if we can't reduce the transmission further. Yeah, it was it was definitely not great. I think we ended up, you know, the number of reports suggest about 10% of the convention reported a positive test in the kind of 10 days at the convention or in the sort of 10 days following it, which is, I would say, pretty high and, you know, still higher, I think, than things like Novacon, which we thought had quite a few cases last year. 
and definitely much higher than Norwescom. So there are things you could do, but I, I struggle to find ways that you could do things that aren't fundamentally, you shouldn't all sit in the real L bar or in a party or in a disco with your masks off for five hours. And it feels like everyone was sort of willing to, if, if people are in those spaces, I presume were willing to kind of take the risk of being in those unmasked spaces because they enjoyed chatting and drinking with people. I did actually circulate in bars less than I normally would. And I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing or or accidental, but I, I, I spent the number of people I actually spent a lot of time chatting to is it was much smaller than it might have been at the average Easter card. I had kind of, a couple of long conversations each night rather than many. Yeah, I, th- I think I probably kind of flitted about from group to group less, although I think I do that less from Al- than Alison anyway. And definitely there was one night where we sort of sat in a corridor, kind of round, round a corridor away from the real elbow rather than sitting in the real elbow. All that was mostly to do with the availability of chairs. Oh, that's my favourite space in the park-in for sitting and chatting, is that little bit round the corner from the real elbow. I mean, obviously, if I tell everyone, then everyone will want it. Yes, sorry. Um, but, but, but I definitely think not getting COVID was a case of I was very recently vaccinated. I was quite diligent about mask wearing and I wore quite a good mask. And I just was lucky not to catch it from any of the people I had prolonged unmasked conversations with. I definitely had prolonged mask conversations with people who were positive at the time. Um, but I guess we won't know, won't know for sure. I, I put in the show notes, turns out beer sharing is not as dodgy as all that. And this <laughs> picked me up on that. Well, I mean, the, yeah, there are photos of obviously me, John and Alison sharing one beer on the Octothorpe Live at EasterCon at a time when, unknown to us all, Alison had probably got COVID. Um, and we, we seem to have escaped in that she didn't pass it on to me or John. But I mean, I think there were at least three or four people in that room who probably had COVID at the time. So... <laughs> It seems likely, right? Like, given that 10% of people tested positive after the event, if you assume that was proportionate in all of the panel items and there were about 40 people in the room, I I would have expected three or four. Obviously, like, I'm not an expert, but Liz is an expert and she just said it and I'm agreeing with her. So uh, I'm definitely right. I really wanted Liz to read out the thing she said in the show notes, which I thought was very funny. Um. I mean, I'm, I, by that, I mean that specifically I noticed three or four people in the room who then reported positive tests. So I'm not basing it on any mathematical thing. I'm saying, oh, those three people who are my mates who I saw were then like, oh, I'm positive. No, no, I, it, was, it was the thing where you were like, I was like, beer sharing isn't that dodgy. And you were like, not compared to turning your head to spray aerosols on your co-hosts. Yes. So I, I, we, we also discovered at Octothorpe Live that one thing that Alison cannot refrain from doing on panels is turning her head to look at her fellow panellists, even when that means taking her mouth well away from the microphone, which I thought was the major problem at the time. But it turns out that may, you know, pale in, in, in significance compared to the fact that Alison was therefore spewing aerosols directly at me and John for an hour. But we had both taken the sensible precaution of uh topping up our antibodies pre-eastercon liz with a uh jab from thailand and me from getting covid from movers and so you know one of those is a more sensible approach than the other i think uh but it did stand us in good stead for the convention 
I mean, Mark and I, so when Mark Plummer came down with COVID, he sent me a text saying, you know, at least this is well-timed free stick on. And uh, and I did. It was one of the things that I thought when I got it, I was like, oh, thank goodness. It means I'm very unlikely to come down with it on my holiday to Spain and my trip to Eastercon. Um, And that, so it, so it turned out to be. Yeah, I, I think we both took the more readily available way of getting antibodies in our countries at the respective times. Yeah. Yeah, so probably I should have gone for a few par- to a few parties a month before Eastercon, or hung out with Mark Plummer more. <laughs> Just move house, Alison. So the other thing I wanted to pick up is that I've heard some people saying, "Well, you know, actually a lot of a lot of people took a calculated risk here. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were getting into, and a lot of people have reminded us of the Chester Eastercon, which is about the same size as this one, where about the third of the convention came down with norovirus afterwards. And I have to say, my experience of COVID has not been as bad as um, many people's. I didn't catch norovirus on that occasion, but many people's experience of post-Eastercon norovirus. So. If, I, if there hadn't been a pandemic going on, I wouldn't have noticed this this illness as being anything untoward. I mean, I've never had norovirus, so it's a difficult comparison. Do not recommend it. I think Chester was slightly smaller, but I take your point. Do we want to talk about Norwestcon's Case 3? And Case 5. Yes. So um, I was first alerted to this by a tweet from Shona Maguire, but Norwestcon published you know, their own case reports of people who reported COVID positive tests after NorwestCon on their website. Um, And it turned out by positive tests after the con, they also mean positive tests at the con or before the con. And in at least two cases, positive tests at or before the con and symptoms and continuing to go to the convention. Um, uh, So, yeah, I'm just sort of, I just look at it and I'm staggered. Like, even if you did that, why would you then go and report it? I guess... Your conscience doesn't prick you that maybe, oh, I have COVID, I shouldn't go and sit in the games room. But it does prick you that you should then tell people later on that you're in the games room with COVID. Yeah, it's just I can't get my head around the mindset. So I am fairly certain that there were people in this position at EasterCon. Um, I don't have names or anything. This isn't like I so-and-so. But I think that we almost certainly in a convention of 600 odd people um had people who knew perfectly well they got covid and were keeping their mouths shut about it um and go to the convention anyway and those people are absolute rotters and i think they should sod off i'm abandoning all balance or pretense of diplomacy if you are one of these people stop listening delete the podcast i don't like you no 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 carry on listening if you're one of these listeners write in so we could roundly mock you i think it's reasonable to assume that there were there was a lot of infection around, um, but you know it did, we didn't need a lot of infection. There were plenty of people who tested positive during the convention, and there's plenty of time at Eastercon to spread the infection. And we are one community; everyone socialises with everyone else. I also don't know because obviously the other thing with Eastercon is that we were not the hotel we used for Eastercon is also a hotel used by a lot of people who fly with airlines and so um it might also be the case that like even if everyone even if allison is wrong and no one at the eastercon was attending suspecting they had covid um you know there were vectors probably there were a lot of sick people in the in the breakfast room on friday morning i think not going if you're thinking about things simple things you could do to reduce your risk at eastercon 
travelling on the Friday is probably one of them because because there were a lot of non-fans in the hotel on the Thursday night and obviously those people weren't following the convention's mask policy at breakfast. Although I will say the masking at EasterCon was better than the masking at the hotel Liz and I stayed at when we visited Reading with Alison last summer because, my God, that was more crowded and less masks. Um, and that was, I mean, that was in summer, so I guess the cases were lower then. But um, I will say EasterCon did a pretty good job of... The EasterCon was better than other hotel breakfasts I have been to lately. So that is good. Well done, EasterCon committee. And I think, in general, the EasterCon committee should be applauded. Uh, I think they did a, about as good a job as they possibly could have done, maybe with the exception of better enforcement in the disco. Um, what do you What do you two think? Is that a reasonable statement, do we reckon? Yeah, I mean, I think you could have been stricter. You could, you could say something like, okay, the real L bar or some social spaces are designated like eating and drinking spaces. And in other places, you must remain masked except for, you know, to take a sip of your water or something. So basically try and encourage people not to take pints into panels and sit there slowly sipping them and, and things like that. Um, and then in a way, it would let attendees choose if they go into the, the social spaces or not. But it is difficult because if they said, OK, you know, real L bar, we want you to try and mask up between sips and make sure you mask when you were moving around and mask when you're going to the bar. There's still the hotel bar, which is not a convention space. And so they cannot really enforce people masking there, particularly as there were non-convention guests in the hotel bar, you know, acting in, you know, in complete accordance with the, you know, the current state of things in the UK, which is that people don't habitually wear masks at all. So... Yeah, I think I think there are, you know, there are possibly a few things you could have done, but it would have been quite difficult to actually practically implement those. The convention was also under-volunteered, and one of the consequences of that was especially during setup when volunteers were working very, very hard, there was a lot of not being masked whilst getting the work done going on. And I think if you had a convention where you had enough volunteers, including enough volunteers to account for people who came down with COVID, um, you could say, but we are going to require you to mask while working um, in setup. We're not going to actually allow you to have pockets where you go, well, we're working on the convention in this space and you're not masking. Um, and I think we could have done that. And I think we could have done better because... For programme items, the rule was you can bring a drink in, but you have to just raise your mask, have a simp, re-mask. Not everybody was doing that. And I think we could have policed that sort of thing. Oh, no, and I will say, sorry to butt in before Liz has had a turn, but I will say one of the other things Espanya and I said on the train home was a few chicken veggies. I do wonder whether there needs to be a rule around you're not allowed to eat and drink in panels because as much as that would be slightly annoying i do wonder whether the bonus would be worth it i mean i, I very rarely take drinks into panels because i always spill them um so this would not really affect me negatively very much uh, so maybe i'm wrong I, I don't want to restrict people being able to take water in oh well yeah no i mean i think that's fair when i say no food and drink i'm sort of doing the because le- lecture theatres often say no food and drink but there is a an acceptance that water is pretty much okay um so yes good point liz do you want to get a word in uh i think i've had quite a lot of words on this one but i will take the opportunity for another i think you're right but i mean when i'm drinking water from a bottle of water i'm not drinking it like i am from a pint i'm like i really really just have a drink and then put my mask down and that's what i was doing in all the panels i didn't take any beers into panels this time um i thought it was safe to leave my mask on because i was surrounded by people that i probably uh, basically i was sitting next to different people in every panel 
and they might be people I didn't know, whereas at least in the bar, I was sitting next to usually the same people consistently. So we may have been en masse, but maybe that kind of limited my exposure to that smaller group of people. I would also say that uh, EasterCon actually didn't say you had to be masked. They said you had to wear a face covering. And I think you could be stricter about what is an acceptable face covering. I mean, it's it's still kind of surprising to me because I come to the UK and like, to me, there's still a shock to it because my expectation is if I get on a train, everyone on the train will be wearing a mask. And they're almost all well-fitting surgical masks or, you know, KF94 and 95 masks at this point with very few cloth masks, you know. And this is just kind of what, what I expect. So it was quite surprising to see people with sort of like very loose masks or bandanas or face shields or things that are probably not really having much of an effect. I don't know if I, you'd just get that little bit of extra safety by saying people have to wear an actual face mask, which is well fitted. I will say like, and obviously I'm not an expert, but I would, I have moved to using FFP2 and FFP3 masks. Uh, not everyone will find that they fit their faces very well, but there's also the N95, the N99 and various other countries standards. And I would encourage listeners to explore the options because I, I find I find the FFP3s especially are actually much nicer to wear than a cloth mask because cloth mask, they don't fog my glasses up. So I found that to be an enormous quality of life upgrade uh, generally. Um, but certainly at this point... I think it's probably time to make the switch. Because they fit you, John. People were seeing the praises of KF94 at SMOFCON and it was a, it was a complete revelation. Being so much happier. Yeah, they're so much more comfortable. But, I mean, I, I guess two more things I want to say. One is, you know, we can suggest things around the edges they could have done. But I don't think there any, is anything that would have fundamentally made the difference from 10% got infected to, you know, one person got infected or zero people got infected, apart from... You have to mask up everywhere. And even then, people are still going to eat hotel breakfast. So maybe this is all like fiddling around the edges uh, of the problem. Can we can we get into the bit that you had in the show notes about the... Um... Oh, you want my Norwegian Christmas party anecdote? The other thing, the question here is, of course, we don't have a control Eastercom. We don't know how much spread there would have been if we'd had no COVID policy at all, apart from, you know, don't actively spit on people. Yeah, so I, I, I found this... Uh, uh, an interesting paper which is from the very early stage of the omicron variant really i think before we knew a lot about it and this has probably become written up as a paper and become noteworthy because it was a large outbreak but it's basically a christmas party where all the attendees were vaccinated and asked to test beforehand and they still managed to spread to i think 74 percent of attendees so if you think of that as being like the upper bound of what is possible in a super spreader event then eastercon is doing poorly but Clearly not as poorly as we could have done if we had had no masking rules whatsoever. Maybe. Yeah, though, though I have to say there's a caveat here because a lot of people in Britain have had COVID in the last six weeks, so which is probably not the true of the Christmas party. Yeah. Well, at the Christmas party, because it was very early on in the Omicron spread, no one had had Omicron, crucially, so that was the, that was the issue. I will also say there was some discontent on Discord in the run-up to the convention. People mostly i think people who were not attending the eastcon grumbling about the fact that people were reporting the people in the hotel weren't wearing masks and um weren't complying with the convention mask policy i i do want to say that i think those complaints are a bit i actually know i think those complaints are a lot unfair 
I think the convention controlled as much of the masking policy, maybe with the exception of the disco, as they possibly could have done. And, like, we can't blame the convention, and it's not fair to get snooty at the convention, if other guests in the hotel or hotel staff the day before the convention staff starts are choosing not to wear masks. I am annoyed at the government and at Britain as a culture, but I'm not annoyed at Phil Dyson and his team. The convention couldn't do more than they were legally able to do and they probably overstepped what they were legally able to do by requiring vaccination from every member um so but nobody has a problem with that so it's fine yeah i would say what what we can clearly see is that even with what seemed to be pretty reasonable covid precautions it's absolutely not possible to have a convention which is totally covid safe and um, like I said, all the things that we're doing are kind of like trying to like, you know, make a, a policy slightly stricter, but they won't reduce them to zero. And that just says basically that there's no way we can make in-person conventions at this point safe for everyone. Um, so we just have to make them as safe as possible, but accept that unfortunately at this point we, we can't have in-person conventions for everyone. Although a lot of the people at EasterCon who got covid were people like you know party animals and dealers who were talking to a great many different people it is also true that some of the people who got covid were people who were not spending any time in unmasked eating and drinking spaces who were masked the full time who were being extremely careful and so i think that really under underlines the fact that we we just don't have a safe option here for people at the moment so which is why we have to have excellence in hybrid conventions all join conversation please and levitation. Yeah, but co- but conversation is definitely going to have a convention for people, even people who don't feel that they can come and be with us in person. And so is levitation. Is this going to be dueling Eastercons for like the next year? <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. Oh, no, it's not dueling. I'm just making the point that we are also aiming for this excellent. <laughs> yeah, the next two Eastercons are both very committed to hybridity. It's going to happen. Yep, 100%. This is one of the things that annoyed me about NovaCon because I heard a few people at NovaCon say that it was privileged to have had online conventions because not everyone has the technical access. I think one of the things that NovaCon and EasterCon have shown in spades is that it is also privileged to have in-person conventions. It is a different privilege, but you can't attend an in-person convention if you are at high risk. And that is a privilege that those of us who are not at high risk have. And obviously you can't attend a, a virtual convention if you don't have the technical skill. And so that's a privilege that those of us with the technical skill have. And that's why doing hybrid conventions is good, because it means that you open that net to as many people as you plausibly can i can't see i can't see many ways we can significantly reduce the privilege through hybrid conventions more than we are doing i am going to repeat my offer here which is that if you have somebody who cannot get on to online conventions i can send them a mac and show them what they need to do I can do a hybrid convention in a box kit. I'll probably need to crowdfund if a lot of people come along and say, yes, this is the thing I need. But, you know, I was trying to sell a Mac that will do an online convention for you for £60 at um, EasterCon, and I did not get any takers. So, you know, and that that, that wasn't by any means the lowest technical kit that will do the job. 
I will also say that um, next episode, if we announce our Patreon, that's a signal that lots of people took Alison up on her <laughs> offer. Uh, so do keep your eyes peeled for yeah, that, they're, listeners. They're all, all these Macs are going to have sponsored by, provided by Octothorpe banners on them. Spray painted in, uh, in purple on the side. Spray painted in purple, yeah. I had one more thing to say about Norwescon, which is that Norwescon commented favourably on the example of a panellist who left the convention because they had been pinged as a close contact and if Eastercon had done that the entire convention would have left by Monday lunchtime. Did I don't think I got Did anything while at Eastercon. I got pings afterwards. I got pinged so often I got pinged so often Monday and Tuesday that my phone was like a fruit machine. No I didn't I don't think I got pinged on Monday. I got pinged on Tuesday. Oh no I got pinged on I got pinged on Monday lunchtime, but just pinged just before Octothorpe, actually. <laughs> and then we drank the beer. Oh, no, it was just after Octothorpe. Oh, good. Because it was between when we drank the beer and then when I hugged Liz to say goodbye, I was like, Liz, I've been pinged. <laughs> and she was like, oh, for fuck's sake, Alison. So anyway, uh, if anyone was thinking, oh, Octothorpe are good on COVID, I should listen to their advice. Uh, I like that we've rounded off this discussion with a great anecdote illustrating the dangers of believing what you hear on the internet. Do as we say, not as we did at Eastercon. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, there's a very famous fanzine called Days Nade. <laughs> so yeah, do as we say, not as we do. I, I do not regret hugging either of you at, at Eastercon. That was good. It was nice to see you both. Well, neither of us got covid so we didn't get covid so therefore i don't regret it if i got covid then i might have regretted it i was quite worried about my pcr test i don't know and maybe i don't know if you agree with me liz but like it's very difficult to tell whether i would have behaved differently if i hadn't recently had covid i don't think i would have done i think i behaved much the same but like it did reassure me like i was like i i was i was fairly convinced that unless there was a new variant like a ba3 or a ba4 or a ba5 that was very prevalent at eastercon i would probably not get it because i had already i think had ba2 um i don't know whether you think that your recent booster affected your behavior much i don't think it affected my behavior it just made me feel that little bit safer and specifically in my case because there was a mandatory pcr to um get back home uh, at the time and so you know, failing that would have been quite annoying and potentially quite expensive. I was very pleased when I heard you got that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was also very pleased. That was the bit that was most worrying me is, oh God. <laughs> yes, I, th- I think in hindsight it would have been fine and that has now been abolished. So it's not a particular issue. I mean, obviously I don't want to get COVID, but I also didn't want to have to deal with, um, you know, trying to arrange isolation and so on. But my, my booster was five months ago and I have been sitting in a house for two years. So I was pretty certain I was going to catch COVID over the weekend. I would have been quite surprised if I hadn't, especially if there had been 75 reported cases and I hadn't been one of them. <laughs> one of them were you, yeah. I would have been phoning up the, are you immune to COVID? We want to know about it, people. I know. So I, 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 was, I was expecting to get it. I got it. It was less bad than I was expecting. So it's been okay. I think we may have done, I'm going to suggest that we have done far too much farting on about COVID and um, let's get on with some other stuff. Congratulations to Fia for winning TAF. Are you sure that's fear and not fire? Yeah, 100%. 
Sorry, that's a world cod joke. Oh, <laughs> I thought I thought <laughs> you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I'm. Yeah, no, it it. it sorry, <laughs> I thought it was funny. I'm, I'm sorry, I'd have pushed to the show notes if I thought of it. It's not. It's not bad. Great race, run very well. More, more voters than at any time since two thousand and six. That's good for TAF, good for the fan funds generally, helps people know about fan funds. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing um, Fear in Chicago because we're all going to be there. Yep. Um, we would like to encourage, yeah, we would like to encourage everyone who didn't win TAF to run for TAF again so that they can win next time. All of them, three-way tie. Yeah, I mean, great candidates would still, I mean, I was very honoured to have nominated Anders and I would love to see him run again and win next time that would be very good um and yeah i had some very hard choices in voting i would be happy to see that the losing candidates run again please it's very it's very disheartening to lose a race but you mustn't think oh no that means people don't don't think i'd be a good candidate i think everyone would have been a great delegate this time and um and um it's just only one of them could win and that was fear so Yeah, we're all going to strike on. I've booked my flights and my hotel and my travel insurance and um and I've got my not a visa, whatever it's called, Esther. And yeah. And so yeah, we're definitely going. What about you, John? Uh I've got my flights and I've booked my hotel, which was eye wateringly expensive, and I haven't yet got around to doing the travel insurance. I should probably do that. And I've got membership. Have you got a membership? Oh yeah, no, we've got membership, yeah. So yes, the entire thing was eye-watering expensive the entire thing was like oh my god it's a good thing we have an offset mortgage it's like what do you spend your mortgage what do you use your offset mortgage for an extension no we're paying to go to Chicon and worrying about paying off the mortgage some other year i have booked nothing um <laughs> bought membership <laughs> that was why i went around this line of things i was fairly sure this is where we get to yeah i just haven't got myself organized yet I bought membership. Uh, a very kind person uh, sold me their uh, unwanted attending membership and I swapped it for my sporting membership. So it worked out for both of us. So that was very nice. Yeah, I'll get around to doing it. I just have not actually kind of figured out any of the logistics of the horrendous 24-hour journey that I will have to take to get to Chicago. So, uh, yeah, might be putting that off because I don't want to think about it. Um. We Chicago is supposed to be lovely. It is lovely. Um, yeah, no, I've never been to Chicago. I'm very excited. Have you not? And I, I keep getting more excited because people keep saying, oh, Chicago's kind of like New York as if it had effective city planning and a socialist government. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. I don't remember, you know, the giant Trump Tower on the Chicago waterfront giving me a very socialist vibe. The specific thing they said was, unlike... New York and I think also London though London is getting better about this um, Chicago has treated its waterfront as being a public good for over a hundred years and um, and so therefore it has lots of lovely parklands and it has lots of good stuff and it's all very near the hotel and everything's very walkable and that all sounded good to me apart from it's going to be as hot as the fires of hell but probably not for Liz No, it'll probably be quite a nice temperature for me 
Yes, I mean, one, one reason the hotel is eye-wateringly expensive is because uh, it genuinely is in the middle of Chicago. Unlike, you know, Luncon, where we're like, come to London, maybe zone three. Um, this is genuinely right in the centre. And, and I think when you say eye-wateringly expensive, I think it's about the same price as Satellite's Hotel, which is also eye-wateringly expensive. Yeah, I... Except that if you wanted to put four of you into a room at Chicon, you could do, in which case it wouldn't be expensive at all. I mean, there's obviously a, an Octothorpe sitcom hijinks potential there. <laughs> Where all five of us are in one room and Liz has the bath, yes. Uh, they are big hotel rooms, though. I mean, I've been to, went to the Wilcon there in 2012 and we did put four of us in a hotel room and it was fine, fine, but I was younger then. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it would, be, it would be much cheaper than an Eastcon hotel. At the previous Tricon, I had four people to my room and we also had a deep dish pizza in there, which basically counts <laughs> as an entire person on its own. So, uh, yep, quite oh, big. I ate cold deep dish pizza for lunch one day and I felt so ill. Don't do that. No, we had it for breakfast. It was the absolute best. Like, 100% recommended. Would do again. Last time I was in New York... My New York friend said, we have to show you what pizza, true pizza is like. And it turns out the true pizza in New York is very like true pizza in Walthamstow and was not at all the sort of pizza I missed terribly since leaving the United States in 1982, which is Chicago pizza. And I am really very much looking forward to eating some Chicago pizza. This actually segues very neatly to picks. So in today's picks, my pick is Detroit style pizza. I live in a city now, listeners, that has Detroit-style pizza, and I can order it whenever I want, and it is bloody glorious. It is basically a large square, which is deeper than most pizza, but less deep than a Chicago pizza, and you um, you get like this delicious kind of almost but not quite burnt cheese crust around the edges and it is incredibly nice and the place near us does it with sort of ricotta cheese and fennel sausage and lots of other lovely toppings and i've been enormously enjoying that but i'm looking forward to chicago deep dish as well very much i mean it's a pie basically isn't it yeah it's like a quiche and a pizza had a baby a very cheesy baby yeah, and the baby favoured the quiche more than the pizza, except with less eggs. Tune in tune in to our new podcast, British People Explain American Food, every other Thursday on this feed. Our transcripts have a whole thing where we try and explain cookies. Yeah, I don't see why we couldn't have a whole British People Explain American Food segment most weeks, actually. When we're in Chicago, we're going to have a pancake breakfast. Did we say that already? We're not on the podcast, but we did say it to ourselves, yes. No, we're going to have it. I think we could say this on the podcast. We're going to have a pancake breakfast. At least one pancake breakfast. Maybe six or seven. <laughs> At least one pancake breakfast. But what pancake breakfast together. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll also go for like six or seven pancake breakfasts without you probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to propose here and now that instead of doing a live Octothorpe at Chicago, we just go around eating various American foodstuffs and making mini podcasts about them. And by the end of the convention, we might be hunted down by every American. I mean, by all means, do write to the Chicago programme team and demand Dr. Thorpe Live. That would be quite funny. No, God, don't do that because I'm on the Chicago programme team and it'd be slightly embarrassing. Yeah, please all tweet at Liz demanding Dr. <laughs> Thorpe Live, listeners. I don't have that sort of power, John. <laughs> so my pick, while I had COVID, I got to read some books that are purely entertaining and not informative or improving in any way. And... um. 
several of my friends have suggested that you can do this all the time and it's more fun than reading the sort of highfalutin stuff. But anyway, I've really enjoyed um, Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve, a bit late for Eastercom. If I had read it a few weeks earlier, I could have gone up to it. Eastercom and said, I really, really loved your book, which I did. thought it was great. Looking forward to the rest. I liked I liked the fact that it didn't pull its punches because it's a kid's book, but it kind of goes into places that kids' books don't necessarily always go. And it did it quite well. Um, and I liked how inventive it was and I liked how cinematic it was, though apparently the movie's terrible. So that's a bit sad. Um, but I did like the fact that it, it it evoked cinematic images in my brain, which I like. And it was good fun. And I've got the second one out of the library. Good library. It's a great thing around reading old books is that libraries have them in stock and you can read them. So my, my pick of the week, I will have to be slightly circumspect about it because my pick is video game Horizon Forbidden West. Uh, it's equal to the video game Horizon Zero Dawn. Alison has left because Alison has not finished playing Horizon Zero Dawn, which is going to hear what I say when she listens back to the podcast anyway. But I know John is also playing Horizon Forbidden West, and I think he's not finished. I have gotten to the point where I'm at the bottom of a hill, and I told Neil this, and he went, oh, you're ages behind. So that probably tells you that I'm quite a long way behind everyone I know who's playing it. Bottom of a hill? Oh, 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 right. Yeah, so I've I've gone down a big rope like lift thing and an awkward man has been awkward at me and I have told him to get get you know and gone off to do my Aloy thing like a an absolute legend. Right. So John has played approximately five to ten percent of the game so far. Oh, I would say less than that. <laughs> There's a lot. I, th- I finished up. I mean, I was quite completed about it. I haven't finished everything, but I've done basically every quest I could find. And I end up on about 110 hours played. So that'll give you an idea of how long it is. But yeah, if you played, I'm trying to think of a good way of explaining it that doesn't spoil either Horizon Zero Dawn or Horizon Forbidden West. Too much for those who haven't played them. Um, basically, you play as uh, Aloy, a heroine who was an outcast from her tribe. And lives in a sort of uh, this kind of future where where humans are living in kind of separated tribes in a kind of fairly primitive existence. But there are all these giant robot machines striding about. And what's going on with that? And and what's going on with that is what you're going to find out overplaying in the course of both of these games. The first one is spectacularly good. The second one is still pretty good, but maybe not quite as spectacularly good because the, the novelty isn't quite there. Finding out kind of the second act of the story is not quite as exciting as all the stuff that gets unraveled in the first act. But it is it is still great. You're still essentially roaming around this giant open world, you know, shooting giant mechanical animals and sneaking up behind them and, uh, you know, throwing sticky bombs at them and shooting them with different ammo and, you know, going around meeting all these different tribes which they do a great job of kind of having all these distinct groups of people with their own kind of traditions and building styles and 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 outfits that look really uh distinctive and i would say that my main criticism of the second one is they put too much stuff in it so where in the first one i had like six different weapons and this one i have like 12 different weapons that do 27 different things and i spent way too long trying to work out okay what is the optimal weapon for shooting this giant crocodile machine in the face a lot 
And it also has the very annoying thing where if you kind of pause for too long, Aloy will say something helpful like, maybe I should scan for points of interest and things like this. And it's like, no, I'm on my way to do what you're just about to tell me to do. It's just I fell off this cliff and have to climb back up again. Um, and that gets surprisingly jarring after 100 hours of it. Um, but I did really enjoy it. Even on PlayStation 4, it looks spectacular. The voice acting is pretty great throughout. And it's just 100 hours of fun. So if you haven't played the first one and you have a PlayStation, you should go out and get it right now. And if you haven't played it and you haven't bought a PlayStation, then you should go out and buy a PlayStation, which segues very well into what Alison was about to say. <laughs> I bought a PlayStation to play this game. I didn't realise it at the time. I thought I was buying it to play a different game. But it turns out that this is the game I bought the PlayStation to buy. And the other thing about the first one is that it's a game that's so good that it tipped the conversation on best games, Hugo, from, oh, well, I can see that there's an argument for why we might have best games, Hugo, to obviously we need to have a best games, Hugo, so that we can give the Hugo to things that are like this. And it, it reminded me very much of what happened with Watchmen um, back in the mid-'80s, which was that there was, they had to invent a special Hugo for Watchmen because they didn't have um, best graphic novel at the time. I think that is fair. I think Horizon Zero Dawn is like the first time I played a game where I was like, oh, this is like great science fiction in a game. And I don't think I'd had that prior to that point. Like, it's not like there hadn't been science fiction in games. Like, Mass Effect is an obvious example. Mass Effect! <laughs> Sorry. But um, but I think Horizon... I mean, I played Mass Effect and it was okay. Um, but Horizon really tickled me. Now... I will also say that I'm not sure that Sony quite realises how popular the franchise is. And I say this because they released a Horizon Zero Dawn Lego set and it sold out within five hours of coming out. Um, I went to get it from the Lego shop and it, it, they did not have any more. There had been a big queue at the time the store opened. No! So you don't have one? And I did not get my tall neck. No, John! I know, but I am kind of happy about this because I think it shows that there is appetite for the franchise. I think that is good. Yeah, it was their first uh, first Horizon thing, wasn't it? Sony probably has a very good idea of how successful the franchise is on account of how they have sales figures. They won't know how many people are... are um buying second-hand playstations to play it but they know how many people are playing it because obviously they're tracking every minute i spend playing it and things like that they know the thing they didn't know is what the overlap between horizon fans and lego fans is and i think it's probably higher than they expected but i don't but i don't think it's fair to say that the sales figures of a video game reflect the cultural penetration of that video game in isolation I suspect there are games that have sold as well as Horizon that have not got the same level of cultural penetration and therefore I suspect you need more data than just that one number to work that out. Yeah, it's a very good game though. It is, it's so good. Yeah, so good. And I haven't played the second one yet but I'm looking forward to it. They'll probably take a... I am now something like 52% of the way through the first one so I'm I'm further on with it than, than I had thought. Have you found out that all of the animals are robots yet? Spoilers, listeners. <laughs> All of the animals are not robots, because otherwise I've been eating a lot of robot, and that's not been great. Some of the animals are bloody little rabbits, and you have to kill the rabbit to make your pouch for holding arrows bigger, which is the worst mechanic. Ah, oh. Yes. 
I am going to have some a little whine about Horizon, and I'm, I don't know if this is improved in the sequel, but if I had to complain about things, it would be like, I am like umptium games in, hours into this game where umptium is a lot, and I'm still having to wander around picking up bloody herbs everywhere, and that is pissing me off. And I also have to keep shooting animals, and that is also pissing me off. And I could be doing without that. Though it's quite relaxing. It's kind of very meditative to sort of wander around the countryside filling up one's medicine pouch, um, which I need to do because obviously all of the giant robot things kick my butt repeatedly because that bit where I was supposed to work out what weapon I should use, I'm just going, if I stand on a ledge and hit fire arrows into this, it will die eventually. And that does seem to be true in most cases. So my other complaint about the game is that actually... There's a lot of there's a lot of quests in this game, and a lot of them work exactly the same way. And I'm getting a little bit tired of it, but I mean, I have having fun. So what I'm going to do, I will look up before the next episode exactly how many crabs I have massacred in order to make Aloy's rope pouches and so on. Because the second game is not any better about that. I've killed so many crabs. I've killed so many owls. I killed some seagulls and felt slightly bad about it. Killed owls. Yes, because I need owl feathers. Okay, she's dead to me. And I need like three owl feathers to make a pouch. And apparently I'm such a bad hunter that this takes at least 12 owls to get enough feathers to make my pouch. And then it's like, well done, you have a level three pouch. Now make a level four pouch with some more owl feathers. Yeah, so one of the things that's very annoying about the hunting, the thing that's very annoying about the hunting mini game is that you don't always, no matter how effectively you kill these beasts, you don't always get the thing you're looking for, and that is very annoying. Like life. I'm like, we, I got over this in video games. Ooh, bring me an iridescent crab shell. Why do you need a particular iridescent crab shell? Well, because it's pretty, Ellis. I will also say this doesn't count as a repick because when we discussed it in episode 39, we hadn't invented picks yet. So it gets off on a technicality. <laughs> also, it's, it's, we, we have got a long tradition of going around. And also, she, Liz is talking about the second game and I talked about the first game. I'm talking about the second one. And also, we have a long tradition of getting distracted and talking about video games a lot because that's the sort of content that Mark Plummer loves. And it's midnight in Bangkok, so yes. that was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. well done and we didn't have 15 minutes of talking about arkham horror nope the theme music for this episode was fanfare for space by kevin mcleod and competech.com used under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license this podcast will end at the beep beep